I don't know about the rest of you, but I was <laughs> trying to figure out what just happened just now. <laughs> I was encouraged by Mike's word, what he just shared about the, the weather. And he prayed like Elijah and praise God. I just want to say this, Mike, you, people are going to be looking for you come wintertime, bro. <laughs> when the blizzard comes, they're going to be praying for you to tell the Lord, hold the blizzard up. And all the kids are going to pray that you pray that the blizzard comes. By saying that, you have officially become the weather whisperer, brother. So just know, just know that that's going to happen. Very encouraging things going on. Many of you would know this because Mike is not going to say this, but today is his last Sunday. He's going on sabbatical. I pause for dramatic effect. That's what you do. Dramatic effect. It's like watching a scary movie. Scary movies would not be scary if it weren't for the music. Right? You watch a movie, and it's the music that makes you get tense. Without that, if somebody just jumped out, you might be irritated. But it's the music that makes you be like, man, what's going to really happen? Don't go over there. It's the music that makes you talk to the, to the screen. So, Mike, we will miss you, buddy. Mike will be gone for the month. We'll be praying for him and that he would enjoy his time with his family. He will be gone. And Donna will be retired, so I'm holding the fort down, me and Jasmine. So, pray for us. <laughs> Jasmine will be, we'll be all right. We will be back to back. All right, we are back in familiar ground today. We are returning to the book of Romans. I don't know if that's because we return to the book of Romans because y'all tired of us not being in Romans. I'm not sure what that means. <laughs> I was, I felt like the best thing to do because it's been a while since we were in Romans. We are officially in Romans chapter 8. That's where we ended. We ended at the end of 7. I did three messages on who is the man that he's talking about in Romans 7. We are officially in chapter 8, but it's obviously been a long time since we've been in Romans. And Romans is the kind of book it's a dense book. It's the kind of book that your mind has to be in the book. It's not like reading Romans just for your own time with the Lord. You're, you, you have to enter into the world of, of Romans. And because it's been some time, it's, it's important that we review also because there are people here now that weren't here when we were doing Romans. So to be fair to them, we need to do some review. Now, my initial perspective was I was going to do Romans 1 through 5 today, and then Romans 6 and 7 tomorrow, and get us back in Romans 8 in two weeks. And as I began to look, and I said, I'm going to do Romans 1 through 5, I clearly felt like the Lord went like this. <laughs> and as I looked, if I would have tried to review chapters 1 through 5 in Romans, I would have been able to hit one verse of each chapter and try to, it's impossible. Romans is too important, actually, to do that. The book is too important to just stay at 30,000 feet and try to bring us back into it. It's just too important. So today we're going to begin, it, we're going to look at chapters 1 and 2, and next week 3, 4, and 5, then 6 and 7, and then we'll be back to our regularly scheduled broadcast in Romans 8. Now Romans, for me personally, for some of you who were here when we did this, you're going to hear some things that I said before because this is a review. But I want to say something amazing about Romans. Romans, to me, in many ways, is the most amazing letter in the scriptures. Not because it's 16 chapters, or not because it's the most theological. 
Romans, to me, represents the, the greatest demonstration of God's grace. And I don't mean by the, the content, not the theology within it, because every letter represents God's grace in its content. Romans represents the greatest grace to me, because if you think about this for a second, Rome is the city where Jesus was crucified. So remember, the Jews went to the Romans, they went to Pontius Pilate and asked him to execute Jesus. And Pilate tried to wash his hands from the responsibility of doing so. And his wife even had a dream not to do it. But eventually, Pilate gave way because they were, he was afraid of what, if it got back to Caesar, that he wasn't acting in accordance with what, was, what, what he should do. And so he gave him and he crucified the Lord. And we know from the scriptures that there were Roman soldiers that were uh, tying Jesus to the cross and nailing his feet on the cross and Jesus is praying for them, Father, for, forgive them for they know not what they do and then they, they hoisted him up and the Romans are casting lots for his clothes. It was the Romans who killed the Lord, literally. And for there to be a church in Rome with one of the most theological letters in the Bible it is amazing, amazing display of God's grace. The very city, the very people that killed his son, instead of destroying the whole nation, he, he provides a church and a letter to help them understand and live in light of the person that they murdered. This is a significant display. Of God's grace. These are the people that killed. This is the city. And now there's a church. There's a church in Rome. Now, this city is very important. Rome is somewhat like New York City, it's a port city. People travel here from all over the world. Okay? So, this is important. To have a church in Rome is to have a church. In this day and age, the most influential city in the world. So if you can get a church here and people are sharing the gospel and they're, they're working at ports and they're fishermen and they're, they're sharing the gospel and people believe the gospel and go back to where they came from, they take the gospel with them. So a church in Rome is a big deal. And despite the fact that these are the people who killed Jesus, what an amazing God we serve. Sidebar, if God can forgive, love, and establish a church in the city that killed his son, why wouldn't he forgive and love each of us even when we fail at times? Be encouraged by this letter. This church was not planted by any apostle that we know. Paul is writing to them, which we'll see in just a moment. Paul is essentially introducing himself to them in this letter. And because he knows of the significance of this city and what it means to have a church there, he's going to lay it on them. In fact, no other letter has the kind of introduction that this letter has. Now, this church, the Jews were excommunicated by the emperor Claudius, in A.D. 49, there was some fighting between the Jews and the Christians. 
and was causing a havoc in the city. So, so Claudius told all the Jews to leave. So all that's left are Christians, Gentiles, and the church is established. And we'll see in chapter 16 when we get there in six or seven years that, that Paul, Paul, for those of you who've been around, I know the joke. For those of you who did not, don't worry about it. So Paul, Paul sends people to that city. He's going to say, say hello to this person and greet this person and greet that person and greet this person. So we're going to see that this was a strategic plan from Paul. He, he sent people to this city because he knew of its importance. And so all the Jews leave, and for five years, it's just a Gentile church. And then Claudius dies, and then all the Jews come back. Now, during that five-year period, this church has established its own views of what it means to be a Christian. It's established its own views, many of them, disheartened towards the Jewish people because they were the ones who gave Jesus over to be killed. So they're coming back, and now some of those Jewish Christians are coming together, and there's a chance for there to be a great church or a clash of the titans. This is not just, oh, okay, you guys are back. There's different theological understandings, different challenges. It's not just, oh, like our church, oh, we're just diverse. It's way more complicated. So as these Jews come back around A.D. 54, now they're coming back to a church that is established that has not had any Jewish foundation. And there are Jewish people who have longly, for most of their lives and their whole history, have not had a favorable view of people that were not Jewish, which we call the Gentiles. So there's a chance for friction. There's a chance for friction. The best I could put it would be like if someone here had a horrible racial experience and then you come in and you're sitting beside someone who's the same ethnicity and looks just like the person who did something to you, how difficult would it be for you to be beside that person in church? They're coming back and anything can happen here. And we can say, no, they're all Christians. What well, is with Christians in this room? There's Christians all over the world and there's challenges, right? So they come back together, could have been a hostile environment, and Paul, seizing the moment, opens his letter in chapter 1 with these words. Beginning in verse 1, and I quote, reading from the CSB translation. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh and was appointed to be the powerful son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles, including you who were also called by Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is his hello. This is Paul's version of hello. I think it's safe to say that there is no other letter that Paul wrote that had this much detail in the introduction. This, this introduction gives you the, the severity of, of the location of this church in this city and what, it, what Paul's hoping to accomplish. Because Paul could have easily, as he does in most of his letters, just used verse 1 and verse 7 and moved on. Verse 1. 
Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, verse 7. To all who are in Rome, loved by God, called the saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we would have been okay with that. That's how most of his letters start off, if you know the letters. But in verses 2 through 6, he packs a theological punch. He's establishing something significant for this church. This whole letter is going to be dense theologically, comprehensive, because he's establishing. This is almost like a new church, a new reality that there's a church in Rome. So he gives a whole bunch of theology in just a few verses. You see in this in this in this in these seven verses, you see stuff like prophecy. In verse 2, verse 1 and 2, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. So he's going back now to the Old Testament. He's proving something significant. There's a couple of things he's saying here. There's, this prophecy, you know what prophecy is? Prophecy is just God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. We talked about this in another meeting. Whenever you see genealogies, like the beginning of Matthew, the beginning, it's, it's showing you God keeps his promises. And here are generations of people that have lived through the promises to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This is no joke. He's saying, look, God promised these things beforehand through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures. In other words, God is fulfilling what he said a long time ago, hundreds of years ago, maybe thousands of years ago, a thousand plus years ago. He's fulfilling it right now in the Scriptures. This is what he's saying. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was a descendant of David, according to the flesh. For us, that doesn't carry much weight. But if you were a Jew in this day and age, the son of David is who you were waiting for. You know, one clear difference that we have, one clear disadvantage that we have that they didn't have in this culture. Here's a huge disadvantage that they had that we didn't. Not just that Jesus was there, right? Here's a disadvantage. We live in a culture where people are not looking for God or waiting for God. We live in a culture where the church has been established for some years and there's a ton of people who have church hurt, maybe even in this room. There's church hurt. You've been hurt by either pastors or people in churches. Your, your, your propensity to trust people has, has lessened. You have no desire to really open up. And so you know you may know you need church but you, and may need relationships, but you don't really trust anybody because you've experienced church hurt. You're not looking for God. You've already experienced them and to some degree don't like some of your experiences. We live in a culture where religion has, is, is so dominant and Christ has been a part of that for the good and for the bad. But in this day and age, the Jews were waiting for the Messiah. They were waiting for him to come. That's why you would hear him cry, son of David. When they went to find Peter, they said, Peter, we think we found him, the Messiah. And everyone knew who that, really? When John the Baptist was baptizing in Matthew 3, they're asking him, are you, are you him? And he was like, no, I'm not. The one coming after me is. They had this notion. There was this, a, a level of spirituality and waiting for God to come restore and redeem them that we don't have today. So when he's talking about here, a descendant of David according to the flesh, they know what that means. For us, it's just a phrase. We get it too, but it doesn't resonate because we weren't waiting for the son of David like they were. He's acknowledging in his hello, 
that what I'm about to tell you is very serious. And the proof of what I'm telling you is it's been fulfilled throughout the scriptures from God's prophets. It prophets is happening now. Verse 4. And he was appointed to be the powerful son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. I mean, he's getting into justification is in here. Sanctification. Personal identity, adoption. It doesn't say sons and daughters, but that's what resonates in this passage. Verse 5, through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles. There's sanctification. Justification is in here, including you who are also called by Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Wonderful introduction to people who don't know him, they know about him, but to demonstrate the reality. Look at what he covers, who God is, who he is, and who they are. All in these seven verses. If his letter somehow ended here, they would know enough to believe and enough to be assured if it ended here. It's fascinating material. But it doesn't. We're going to keep moving because this is just a review. <laughs> I don't know what that laughing is for, but I'll take it. All right, beginning in verse 8, here's what he says. And he gives his introduction. He gives us a low, and then he goes into verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because the news of your faith is being reported in all the world. That's a crazy verse. We'll come back to that in a second. God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit, in telling the good news about his son that I constantly mention you, always asking in my prayers that if it is somehow in God's will, I may at last succeed in coming to you. So here it is. Paul hasn't seen them yet. He hasn't met them yet. He just knows about them, knows that they're established, and he's been hoping to get to them. So this letter is sort of his introduction before he gets to this, to this, this city to see them. And so he's, he's saying this right now. He's sharing his affection for them simply because he heard that they believe in Jesus Christ. This is an important reality. This is an important reality. Paul has not met these people yet, as indicated right here. I may now at last succeed in coming to you. He, doesn't, he hasn't met them yet. But listen to what he says about them going forward. Verse 11, for, what I want, for I want very much to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Now, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I often plan to come to you, but was prevented until now in order that I might have a fruitful ministry among you, just as I've had among the rest of the Gentiles. So see, this is a largely Gentile church. He's identifying them, the Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and, to, and the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are also in Rome. Listen to what he's saying here. I don't know you, I haven't met you, but I love you already. There's a love I have for you and a desire to be around you. Why? Because I heard that you believe in Jesus Christ like I do. I heard that you believe in Jesus, and so I love you, I'm grateful for you. In fact, I tell other people about you just because I heard you profess to believe in Jesus. These are shocking words, especially in our day and age. You know why? Because there are Christians who are in churches with each other that don't get along. Yeah. Yeah. 
You got believers, people who profess to be believers in the same churches or through social media will attack people and call people non-Christians and say the most vile things without any clear evidence, and that's accepted. As a matter of fact, in some circles, you're seen as somehow strong and standing up for the faith to be rude and unloving. And yet here, Paul hasn't even met these people yet, doesn't even know them. He just knows they believe in Jesus, and because of that, I love you, and I cannot wait to spend time with you, and not just to show up and teach you something. I want to be mutually encouraged by your faith. I want to learn from you. This is how a church is supposed to be. This is what you strive for as a church. Why do you come to church if you don't like the people that you go, that you're around? Why come to a church? You can listen to messages online. When you come to a location, there should be an expectation that you have. Because God has one for you. He has one for me. Raise your hand if you've been coming to this church longer than three months. Okay. Good. (laughs) Now y'all worried, like, what's he going to say next? (laughs) Here's a question. This, um, This is off of what you thought I would say. Raise your hand if you feel like you don't have relationships in the church after being here more than three months. You don't have to be afraid. Okay. All right. One. Was there more than one? Just relationships where you know people in the church and they know you. Okay. Could you know why I asked that question? Because that should never be true in a church. That should never be true in a church. Now, let me say this. This is an area where our church can grow in. On a Sunday, there are times when I'm talking to people and I'll see people looking around and I'll say, hey, hey, do me a favor. Hey, go talk to such and such real quick. Go, can, you, can you talk to that person over there? Can you ask her who she is and how she's doing? Because you know what happens when you come to a church that's supposed to be loving? Say you come here and you like the message. Oh, he was funny. I like this stuff. That doesn't matter. What, people will, what matters is the relationships that you build, the people that talk to you after church. When you don't have that, you can be like, oh, I like that church, but I didn't, people didn't talk to me, so I left. And you know what? I heard that recently about our church. Paul's, after his introduction, here's what he's saying. I don't know you, but I love you, and I'm grateful for you, and I'm telling everyone about you. Paul said that, that the, the reality, the news of your faith is being spread in all the world. He hasn't even hit all the world yet. But the point that he's making is wherever I go, I mention you. I'm encouraging people's faith that you are, that there's a church in Rome, just like people are encouraged that Kanye West seems to be a believer. See? (laughs) See, the spirit is working. (laughs) We didn't even tell me, ladies, come get your check after church. No, there's, there's something about it, right? There's something about that reality. Some people are, are negative about it. Oh, I don't know what you, but the fact is, is listen, even, even if, even if he falls off, you know what? Right now, there's a lot of people that are listening to and seeing this blue album that says Jesus is King. And I'm like Paul, whether in pretense or reality, if Jesus is being proclaimed, I'm good with it. 
There's an encouragement. Paul is encouraging other people, just like we're encouraged about, hey, there's a church in Rome. There's a church in Rome. Rome, Rome? Rome, Rome. You know how you ask twice to make sure we're talking about the same thing. Rome? Yes. The city where they killed Jesus. There's now a church. The gospel penetrated the unpenetrable. So Paul is, is talking about them. He, he gives them this warm welcome. He acknowledges his affection for them just because we're, he's the believers, and it lays a foundation for how we ought to act. It lays a foundation. It's the reason why I love one another is one, of our, is one of our values. Because if that's not present, the scriptures say you don't love God. It's why we want to fight the awkwardness of introducing ourselves to people we don't know. Yes, it's awkward, even for extroverts. It's awkward. You might talk too much. Different cross to carry. Introverts might not talk enough. I love all people, but I, pulling teeth, I, 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 I didn't do good in dentistry. Pulling teeth is, is, is challenging, but it's worth it. It's worth it. I want to imitate this and be a person who says, man, I love these people, even though I don't know them. I remember I used to, I worked at this job, and I didn't think anybody was a Christian. I was like, wow, this is a wild place. And I was walking down the hallways one day, and I saw a Bible open on the desk. And I was like, man, somebody reading the Bible? So I was like, who sits here? So I waited, maybe a few hours later, and I walked past again, and there was this guy there. And I said, hey, I don't mean to uh, bother you, but I, did, you, did you have a Bible on your desk? earlier? And he was like, yeah, yeah. And I said, you a Christian? He said, yeah. I said, bro, I'm a Christian too. He was like, for real? <laughs> and I was like, nah, April Fool's, I'm just playing. I'm just... <laughs> I was like, yeah, I'm a Christian. And he was like, man. We became the best of friends. Best of friends while we worked there. <laughs> no, I just, mean, I don't mean it like that. I just meant things happen, you know, you move on. But while we were there, there was an affection and a love just because. I didn't even know what he believed yet. And my, but there was a joy that sprang in my heart. Lord, may that be the disposition of this church. May that be the disposition of this church. Even though you've gone here for a long time, there's people that you haven't interacted with. And some of those people may be looking for you to just say, hello, what's your name? I think sometimes we get more worried about saying, oh, how long have you been here? Oh, two years. Oh, my gosh, I didn't know. Who cares? If you sit on this side of the room, you might not see people that sit on this side of the room. Shoot, I sit up here. I got the peripheral view, and I'm constantly telling Mike, hey, I ain't seen such and such in a couple weeks. He was like, man, they've been there every Sunday. Because <laughs> when I'm preaching, I'm just in the zone. I don't look at people's faces and lock eyes. I could not see people. You've been here took, taking notes and could preach the sermon next week, and I wouldn't know it. It's important. This is, this is not just Paul saying this. This is something for us to consider. That the love for other people who profess to believe in Jesus Christ compels us to love back. All right, so Paul gives his introduction. Again, this is just, we're just, this is just, we're just reviewing. We're going through this. Paul gives his introduction in 8 verse 15. He lays out sort of his affection for them. And then in verse 116 and 117 is when he gets to the theological framework that will guide the rest of this letter and his life. And it's this, beginning in verse 16. 
For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This is where things take a shift. All right, now Paul, now he's in teaching mode. He's in teaching mode. Now, we don't know the motivations of why Paul said what he said at this particular time, but he's transitioning now. Paul has a mission with this letter. He wants to show them that I'm grateful for you, glad you were here, I love you, but now I need to transition to some very important things that you need to know. I want to make sure you have theological understanding so that you don't get captivated by other great ideas that people say that are not based in truth. So he gets to something that's very significant. And I imagine that people have heard of Paul and have heard some of the things that he's been through. And so Paul begins this transition after greeting them, telling them he loves them, that he's obligated, in verse 15, he's obligated to the Greeks and, and the barbarians. In other words, I'm obligated to share the gospel with all people. And then he says, I'm not ashamed to do so. Now, this is a powerful statement coming from this person. Let me tell you why. You don't have to turn here. In Acts 9, verses 15 and 16, after the Lord knocks Paul off of his horse and blinds him, the Lord goes to a man named Ananias and says to him, go, for this man, talking about his Saul at the time, is my chosen instrument to take my name to the, to the Gentiles, kings and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Okay, so here's what God says to him. He tells this guy, go to him. He's going to lay hands on him, give him his sight back, and then God's going to use him. And he said, I'm, I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Now, mind you, Paul wasn't at that conversation. <laughs> so he didn't know that he was going to suffer. He just knew the scales come out, I believe. He's baptized, then he starts preaching and learning. He has no idea the suffering he's going to experience. He was not a part of that conversation. But in 2 Timothy 3, verses 10 and 11, here's what he says to Timothy, a young pastor that he's discipled. This is his son in the faith, and he says this at the closing of his letters to Timothy. He says in verse 10 and 11, but you have followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, Patience, love, and endurance, along with the persecutions and sufferings that came to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. What persecutions and yet the Lord, what persecutions I endured, and yet the Lord rescued me from them all. So here at the end of his life, he's writing to Timothy and saying, Listen, you've seen me persevere despite the persecution and the suffering, despite the opposition. You've seen me. And he starts naming the places, Iconium, Lystra. He's naming these. These are very vivid memories for Paul. And he says, yet the Lord rescued me from them all. And you can read that and think, oh, okay, things are going to happen to him, but then nothing happened. And so he got out of it. The Lord rescued him from them all, but that's not what he's saying. He's saying, I got through them, 
and I still believe in Jesus. And that was rescue to him. Let me prove the point. In 2 Corinthians 11, he says this, beginning in verse 23, he's, there are people saying that because he suffered a lot, he's not really an apostle. They're going to the church that he planted. That he was there for 18 months with this church. The longest he stayed anywhere, this people say. And they're coming in saying he's not really an apostle. Because if he was, he wouldn't suffer so much. And so here's what he says. In verse, chapter 11, verse 13, 23, he says, are they servants of Christ? I'm talking like a madman. I'm a better one. With far more labors, many more imprisonments, far worse beatings, many times near death. Five times I received the 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. So five times, 40 lashes. I was beaten 195 lashes on my back. That's what he's saying. And those whips had bone, stone, and glass at the end that were designed that when they hit your skin, they ripped it off. 195 times he was beaten. He says, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. A stoning. Where people gather rocks, pick up rocks, big rocks, and they throw them at you with the intent to kill you. And we know in Acts, he was left for dead. They thought they killed him. That means there was blood everywhere. And he wasn't moving. This is the suffering that God said that he's going to experience. And he's saying this suffering is what makes me an apostle. In other words, the lack of suffering doesn't make you a Christian. The perseverance through it proves you are. He continues. Three times I was shipwrecked. I've spent a night and day in the open sea. When he says that, he means he didn't know if he was going to make it. The open sea. After being shipwrecked, that means he wasn't on a boat. He was on a piece of wood floating. And they may not have had shark week back then, but they knew that there were animals. They knew there was fish that could kill him. So he was in that thing wondering, is God going to kill me? He says, I spend the night and the day in the open sea. On frequent journeys, I face dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, and dangers among false brothers, toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and without clothing. Not to mention other things, there is the daily pressure on me, my concern for all the churches." So when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he's saying, I'm not ashamed to be physically beaten or even killed because of who Jesus Christ is. This is the call for the believer. I'm not ashamed enough to be ridiculed because I stand with the sexual ethic that the Bible teaches. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because I want to love in the way that Jesus calls for, even though people tell me that's not the way I should be. I should be offended. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because my political affiliation doesn't determine my eternal destination. The gospel does. You know why this is important for us? Because we're living in a culture where it's telling you to be ashamed. 
be ashamed, be ashamed, be ashamed. And many in this room and in the church are falling victim to it, being ashamed, being ashamed, being ashamed. Then when you do give in to sin, then you got the enemy telling you, be ashamed, be ashamed, be ashamed. No, the gospel is what saved you and gives you confidence. The, the component of the gospel, the salvation component, means your sins are forgiven. When Jesus, Jesus is God, comes in human form, lives the way God commanded it to, to, for everyone to live, lives perfectly, dies brutally, and it says, everyone who believes in me will have their sins forgiven. And they won't be ashamed. Some of the reason why I think the church, the church in the West is weak is because there is no persecution. When we hear about brothers and sisters in China and Iraq and, and other places. Okay, we're not doing a geography lesson now. We're just talking. But you hear about this and you realize, wow, these Christians, you know, I've read. I read these, the Voice of the Martyrs is something I subscribe to, and I just read these. A pastor was kidnapped, a pastor's wife was taken into custody and was put in prison just because they were Christians. And then somehow she found a, 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 a piece of scripture that was a psalm and ended up saving all the women that were in the prison cell. And then when she got out three years later just for being a Christian, she said, I was sent there so I could save those women. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, even if because I believe in it, it does me harm. Oh, I mean, there's so much more to say, but I got to keep moving. All right, so I'm going to start at verse 18. <clears throat> so Paul now, after explaining this about the gospel, it's the power to save, it justifies. He goes into now, let me explain to you sort of the world and the way you should see the world. Let me explain to you sort of how things are in the world. It's almost like what Paul's doing here is what Moses did for the Israelites in writing the creation account. Writing the creation account, writing the story of the flood. They had already heard this stuff, but they had heard it from the Egyptian perspective. They had been, the, the Israelites had been in, in, in Egypt as slaves for 400 years. So after that many generations, they might not even remember that there's an account outside of that. So Moses writes this from God to help them have an accurate understanding of how did they become God's people? How did the world, what, what, what do I think about this, this, this flood that took over the world? There's other accounts that say that. So he writes the accurate version and gives it to them. And Paul is doing that right here. Is he starting to explain, here's why the world is how it is. But he's talking about the non-Jewish world. And he says these words. Beginning in verse 18. For God's wrath is, re is revealed from heaven against all, all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. So here's what he's saying that the world is so set up and so organized and so systematic in such a way that it's impossible for people not to think that some intelligent design did this. 
There's someone that I'm accountable to. There's, there's something greater than this. And you talk about, people always talk about, what's my purpose? There's something greater than this. This is why there's a lot of religions all believe in some afterlife. Because everyone believes there's something beyond this because God has placed that in humanity as being made in his image. We know that instinctively, even if it's not Jesus, that there's something greater than this. And so what he's saying here is that his wrath is coming because people rejected the reality. His attributes are invisible in terms of the specifics of them, but it's clear, wow, how does the sun come up and the moon, and then how does that work? Why does the water never go beyond this point? How does it rain and provide the water right on time so that plants grow? How does the sky form? You ever just seen a beautiful sky and you're like, wow. Or you just are, are struck in awe as you stand there, a, a real mountain. And you think this is amazing. He's saying that the that the people are suppressing the truth. Like, we know something's there. But we don't really care. So he says, as a result, people are without excuse because you know something is there. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show, or show gratitude. Instead, their, drink, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God, of the immortal God, for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. So here he's saying, listen, people worshipped what was created rather than the creator. This is essentially what he's saying. Just in layman's terms, they rather worship the, cre the creature rather than the creator. And man, if this, man, if we weren't moving, uh, Verse 24 and 25, therefore God delivered them over into the, in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. So here God is saying this. It sounds like on first read, okay, God is the cause of their sinfulness. But it says, no, he gave them over to the sinfulness that was already there. In other words, he did not restrain them anymore. Because of their rejection of him, he didn't restrain them. He didn't restrain them. He let them sin in ways that they wouldn't have. You know what? This is an interesting verse. Because if it's true that God gave them over, that means he was restraining them, then that means that God also restrains us. Even as non-Christians, we're restrained. There's a reason why society, for the most part, for the most part, functions in a particular way. I'll never forget, I was watching a soccer game. I forgot where it was. It was in a hostile place, right? I was watching a soccer game. And the crowd, it was maybe, looked like it was 100. How many people in them stadiums, Chris, you would know? 130? Okay. At least 130,000 people in this stadium. And that, the team that everybody came to see was getting ready to lose. And the crowd was getting upset, so much so that you started seeing police officers run out and spread around the stadium, right? There were 67 police officers 
spread around the stadium. How are you going to stop 130,000 people? You talk about David versus Goliath? And the crowd started to chant, you can't stop us. And I was like, oh, wow, this is it. <laughs> I was like, these men gave their life in service of the duty because there is no one going to escape that. And at some, for some reason, when the game was over, the crowd, not wanting to face any criminal charges, just ended up, they just dissipated. And one of the police officers, after interviewing him, was blown away. He was like, I was scared for my life. I don't know where his accent was from, but he's, he was like, I was scared for my life. I was, and oh, and by the way, and all they had was a nightstick. So you don't even got a gun. So you got a nightstick with 67 other dudes, and y'all looking at each other like, man, I told you we should have quit, man. <laughs> you know why that didn't happen? Because of God's. They, 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 there's saving grace, and then there's common grace, what it's called. God's common grace subdued that. So there's a sensibleness that God has given people because he restrains us from what we could do. Now, for the Christian, he doesn't just restrains us, he changes us. So he doesn't just stop us from doing the things we could do, he transforms us so that we don't want to do those things anymore. That's huge. And then he goes on in the rest of the chapter to talk about homosexuality and how that is a, in many ways, is leading up to that as he's building up to this. He's basically saying that that, in Scripture, from God's perspective, is, is the ultimate worshiping of the creature rather than the creator. He's talking about the Gentile world. But then in chapter 2, he makes a shift. He understands, I believe God, speaking, Paul speaking on behalf of God, understands that a shift needs to happen because the point that God is trying to make, he's getting to this point from chapter 1 through chapter 3, is that all people need Jesus. So he starts with the Gentile world, the non-Jewish world, but then he works his way over to the Jewish world. So he's making sure everyone knows. No, it's not just them who need Jesus. Don't be self-righteous and judge what they do. Their hearts are darkened. They didn't even know the law. I gave you how you're supposed to live. And you disobeyed it. And he makes that transition in chapter 2. He says this. Therefore, and I think anticipating judging against people who were Gentiles. Therefore, every one of your judges is with, you, you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. We know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on truth. Do you really think any of you who judges those who do such things yet do the same, that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Because of your hardened and unrepented heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. Now, this is a sharp twist. Remember when he was just saying, oh, brothers, can't wait to be with you guys. Man, I, I got some mutual faith here, man. I can't wait to learn from y'all. And now he's like, man, you hardened, hard-hearted. Be like, it's, today we would say Paul is bipolar. I mean, it's just like he went from I love you guys to like, man, you guys are hard-hearted. So what's happening here? 
What's happening? Well, obviously there are people there that he's referring to. And if there weren't, then he's at least giving them discernment on people who act this way. He's laying the foundation that all people need Jesus Christ. And he's going after them saying, look, you're without excuse too. These people sinned in ways you didn't without the law. They didn't get the Ten Commandments and the other things that I laid out for, for you all. These people sinned in ways just by rejecting the reality of who I am and how I interact in nature even. But you all sin having the law. And you do some of the same things, so you're without excuse. So he's calming down. Flatten that chest a little bit. There's no reason to boast because you don't do the things they do, or you do, and you think because I'm a God of grace that you're just going to be forgiven. You're without excuse. The language here is pretty self-explanatory. Every one of you that judges all the sins that others do are worse because you do some of the same things. You're worse. This is why it's always, always got to be careful. Always got to be careful when we're aware of what other people struggle with. Because it may not be what you struggle with now. Maybe you got through it and it's easy for you. Oh, just do this. Or maybe you don't struggle with it. But there's something you do. There's something you struggle with that is the same thing to God. James said, if you, if, you, if you break one portion of the law, you're breaking what? All of it. Because it's supposed to be perfect. There's something you do. Now, the, the context of judging here, he says that we know that God judges in his truth. The judging that he's talking about is condemning. Condemning other people. Condemning people, in other words, their destination, being condemning people like they're going to hell. He said, when God judges based on truth, the reason why is because God has never sinned. So anytime he makes a judgment, it's based on truth. When we make judgments, when we condemn people, it's not based on truth because we've sinned as well. Again, we just, we just, we have 15,000 feet today. He continues further with the, with the line of thinking in verse 6. He will repay each according to his works. Eternal life to those who persist, who by persistence and doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, but wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. This is where the grace is not so amazing comes from. It's where it's like you can't just live however do whatever, profess to be a believer, and expect there to be no eternal consequences for it. You just can't. And we, as believers, have to be careful as well and not let a culture that, that pressures us into minimizing things that God says we shouldn't for the sake of demonstrating grace, because that's not real grace. 
Grace is not letting someone who's too drunk to drive drive because you don't want to offend them. Grace is taking the keys, calling an Uber for that person. Wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth. So this isn't just sinful. This is you know the truth, you disobey the truth. This is a serious word. There will be affliction and distress for every human being who does evil, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does what is good, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For there's no favoritism with God. So when he says there'll be affliction and distress for every human being who does evil, he's not talking about in this life. Because everyone does that. He's talking about in the next life. In code, he's saying people are going to hell in the next life for their disobedience of the truth. He's talking about believers now. He's not talking about just the world. He's talking about people who know the truth. To them, it was the law. To us, it's the gospel. He's saying people are, there's a punishment for people who know the truth, but as he described it, obey unrighteousness. There's no favoritism. This is the word of God. And it's almost like he's asking the question to this, as he's laying this out for them, which one are you? Which one are you? I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase, God doesn't have any grandchildren. You know what that means? God has sons and daughters. No one gets to heaven because they were related to somebody that was, was godly. No one makes it because you grew up in a Christian home or you were... You, you heard the gospel in college and there was some fruit in your life and then you walked away from it. That's not how it works. It's, it's persevering, enduring, fighting the good fight. It's all those things. We try to do it with joy, but oftentimes we do it in pain. But we still believe. You know what fighting the good fight means? I still believe that he is God. And he's worthy to be praised, despite the fact that my circumstances are difficult and there are things I don't want. That's maturity. When you can say, yea, though who slay me, yet I will praise him. It's maturity for Job to say, will we accept good from the Lord and not evil, not adversity? The Lord will give us all adversity and give us all good. It's the adversity that's the issue. He continues on to say this, all who sin without the law will also perish. So we talked about the law. All who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For the, heavens of the, for the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So when Gentiles who do not by nature have the law do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts either accuse them or even excuse them. On the day when God judges what people have kept secret according to my gospel through Jesus Christ. You know, you ever had somebody say, okay, but well, what about all the people, like when you're trying to share the gospel, what about all the people who never heard the pygmies in Africa or something? You know, people say stuff like that. You know what this passage is saying is that God has so written his law on man's heart 
that even without hearing that, people still have a standard of good and evil, a morality that they can, that God can measure and judge people by. He can judge you by your own conscience. Now, this is kind of mysterious stuff and how it plays out. And the Bible doesn't lay out how God is going to judge people who never heard the gospel. But I know according to this passage is God has put his law on man's heart. This is why this is why a baby. I, I said this, I already said this last week. I was I always watch these videos of like at pets and stuff and how they interact with each other and kids. And there was this baby, baby, maybe two years old, maybe probably 18 months because he was eating an ice cream cone. And the mom was videotaping it, and the dog walked up and then bit the cone and ate it and then took it. And the baby looked up at the mother, at whoever was holding the camera, and then looked at the cone and started to cry. You know what happened? That baby knew this was wrong. <laughs> this was wrong. That was my cone, you know? That baby, without knowing, understanding much in the world, understands justice, understands good and evil. The cone was good. The dog eating it was evil. And now I want something done about it, right? You know what I can happen? Because it's innate. God created us this way. So what the passage is saying is that God can judge people based on their own consciences and still be right. Even if they don't get to hear the message of Jesus. They can hear the message of the law. I can, I can judge you by the law that I put in your own heart. And how well did you keep that? Uh, much more to say, but I got to wrap up. This is just we're, just, we're just reviewing anyway. We'll close with this passage where he ends. He says this, kind of circles back and describes everything. He's going to introduce the reality of circumcision because for the Jews, circumcision meant they were in the people of God. They were seen justified by God is what circumcision kind of meant to the Jews. They thought, you know how, there are some people that think, oh, I was, you know, I'm Catholic. I was confirmed. I remember one guy was like, we were talking about heaven and hell. He was like, I'm Catholic. I said, so you're going to heaven because of what? He was like this. Oh, I was confirmed as a Catholic. I didn't know what, th what this meant. But he just, in him, he meant I was confirmed a long time ago, so I'm good. I was like, uh, I don't think so, bro. I don't think so. So the Jews kind of thought that. Hey, we were circumcised. Like, we're good. We're God's people. And he's going after that saying, no, 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 no. That circumcision doesn't save you. You need Jesus. You still need Jesus. And here's what he says in the beginning of verse 17. Now, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law, which is like the Ten Commandments and things like that, and boast in God and know his will and approve of the things that are superior, been instructed from the law, and if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the ignorant, a teacher of the immature, having the embodiment of knowledge and the truth and law. So if you believe the law and you know all these things and you're trying to disciple and help other people, if you, if you got all that figured out, Number, verse 21, you then who teach another, don't you teach yourself? You who preach, you must not steal. Do you steal? You who say you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who detest idols, do you rob their temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Man, I wish I had a little bit more time. That verse is one of the scariest verses in the Bible. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Man, is that not true today? Circumcision benefits you if you observe the law, but if you are a lawbreaker, your circumcision has become uncircumcised. In other words, yeah, you were circumcised, but once you break the law, it's like you did, you're not circumcised. It's no difference. Circumcision benefits you if you keep the law. That's what it means, observe the law. Keep the law's requirements. 
Will not, his, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? So if someone who has never been circumcised actually obeys God, wouldn't God see that person as they obey me? They listen to me. This is the point he's making. This isn't about your circumcision. This is about the circumcision of the heart, that I love God and want to believe in him and obey him. This is not about that. This is about the heart. Like, I actually believe. Not I grew up in church or I used to do this, so I'm good because... No, that's not what he's saying. Verse 26, so if an uncircumcised man keeps the law's requirements, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? A man, who is, a man who is physically uncircumcised but who keeps the law will judge you who are a lawbreaker in spite of having the letter of the law and circumcision. In other words, there are people who didn't get the law but that obey God will judge you who got the law because you disobey God. Verse 28, for a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly. And true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is of the heart by the spirit, not the letter. That person's praise is not from people, but from God. In other words, he's saying, listen, those who believe. He's leading up to this point. Chapter three, we'll see next week. He's leading up to this grand statement that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what he's trying to help them distinguish is like, listen, just because you've been circumcised and you know the law, you don't keep it. The Gentiles who weren't circumcised and didn't know the law, they keep it better than you. These people are going to judge you because they're the true Jew. The Jew is not just an ethnic designation. It's not just an ethnic designation from God's perspective. It's those who believe and live and live for God and love God. He says, not by the, he says, by the, by the spirit, not the letter. In other words, okay, fine, you can keep your Ten Commandments, but if you reject Jesus, you're not going to make it. Because the Ten Commandments were supposed to be obeyed perfectly. Once you disobey them once, that's it. You can't ever do it perfectly. So you've disqualified yourself from being able to observe the law. That is why Jesus had to come. He's the only one that could keep the law perfectly. Then he was died on the cross as if he kept it the way we keep it. And then said, okay, now anyone who believes in me will have their sins forgiven and will be seen by God as they had kept the law like I did because they believe in me. That's why we're believers, not because we're perfect. I thought Christians were supposed to be perfect. I was like, fam, I'm a Christian because I'm imperfect. I believe in the perfect. That's our reality. All right, chapters 3, 4, and 5 next week. We'll continue with the review. Let's pray, and then we'll take communion. Father, thank you for your word. There was so much here. There's no way, Lord. Thank you for making this, just letting me know in some way, shape, or form that there's no way I was going to do five verses. I couldn't even say everything I wanted to say about these two chapters. I just flew by a bunch of stuff because your word is just too, it's too rich. I just, I just can't, you can't stay at 30,000 feet trying to explain stuff about you that's too important, it's too rich. So Lord, I pray for, Lord willing, I pray for the strength to be able to get through three chapters next week because your word is just so full. And the argument you're making in Romans and the, it's so important. So even today, Lord, what, what was helpful, may it stick. 
what didn't make sense, may they forget or study on their own. But I thank you for this word. I thank you that we're entering back into the world of Romans. And lead us and guide us so that we can be fully invested in in the next couple weeks as we approach Romans and get back to where we should be. For your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. If you're, if you're a guest here or newer, we take communion every Sunday. And communion is by God's design designated for those who do believe in Jesus. So if you're not a believer, you don't have to be embarrassed by this, but this is the one part of the service that we'd ask you not to participate in because this is designed by God to be something that we remember. If we remember the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, we remember that his blood was shed on our behalf. As the ushers come forward, for those of us that do believe, let us remember this every Sunday, and I've never gotten tired of it, because it sets us back in motion. And if you've yet to believe this yet, you can just ask the trade beside you, but I know I would